Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is David Pfizer. I'm a, a pastor here at the well, and it really is a privilege uh, to be able to share God's word with you. This is a special Sunday uh, to all you moms out there. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we had our first son last June, and uh, God has just given me even a greater and deeper appreciation. I really believe what moms uh, do uh, is really a, a beautiful image of really the gospel. Uh, seeing my wife uh, give up her heart, her mind, her emotions, and her physical body uh, to see my son flourish and develop uh, is a beautiful thing to see. Uh, it, it's her sacrifice that's led to the flourishment of my son, and it's all the mothers in here, your sacrifices that have led to the flourishment of your children. And I can't think of a better kind of type or image of what the gospel is and how it's expressed and through what mothers do. So thank you so much. Uh, we love you and you're honored here at the well. Every great movement, every great revival, every great revolution, every great war is won not by the charismatic leaders that maybe catalyze those causes, but it's won by the generation, that community in that generation that has laid aside their personal preferences, their personal comforts, their personal securities in order to give themselves away so that the blessings that they are not ex experiencing can be experienced in the future by another generation. Every great movement, every great cause, it doesn't just take a dynamic leader, it takes a community to see that vision become a reality. I love uh, studying the civil rights movement. And many of you have seen the, this picture. This is Martin Luther King Jr. This is him marching with a group of protesters in Selma, Alabama. And just to, uh, uh, to remind you of what happened at Selma, uh, a group of protesters flew down to Selma, Alabama to protest uh, the discriminatory practices uh, that were occurring to African Americans regarding voting uh, in the Deep South in the Jim Crow era. And so the first time the plan was to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, which is about a 50-mile hike. And uh, the first time they tried to march, uh, policemen uh, brutally, brutally uh, mistreated and abused the protesters. So then the, the protesters, hey, we're going to do this a second time. And the second time they tried to walk across the bridge and there was a court order saying they couldn't cross. And then two weeks later, after national support and outrage, um, Martin Luther King and his community and his protesters and his followers were able to march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery County. And then a month later, LBJ passed the Voting Rights Act, which uh, made it illegal to, to practice discriminatory policies and practices and gave equal rights to African Americans in regards to voting. And when we think of the civil rights movement, we think of King, don't we? But when we... <laughs> Uh, but when, we, when we, th we think of King, but the thing that I kind of think about, the thing that kind of gets me is like, well, who are the people that were with King in this photo? 
Who are the people that were marching alongside him? To the far right is John Lewis, actually. Or to King's far left, that would be John Lewis. But everyone else, I don't know. And it makes me wonder, like, who were the people who said, King, I'm going to march behind you? There was this man, I don't know his name, he had one leg, an older white gentleman who decided, I'm going to march for equality. There was a young African-American man in his 20s who just, put this, just wrote vote on his forehead, who marched with King. There's a woman here uh, in between uh, young African-American men. She was a 65-year-old white woman. Her name was Nanny Baker from Georgia who decided to march. There were doctors. Remember, this was a 50-mile uh, hike. There were doctors who came to the uh, to marchers who, when their feet were tired, when their feet were sore, who attended to, to these people who were marching. There was this girl here. Her name is Doris Wilson. She was 20 years old. She was celebrating in this picture. She says, I'm walking for my freedom. But after the protest, she was fired from her $12 a week job in a school lunchroom for taking part in voter demonstrations. She and three siblings went to jail and her father was removed from the welfare rolls. There were high schoolers who joined the march. When the march came to Montgomery, there was high schoolers who were out of school and they joined in the march and even children. You see, in a movement, it's more than just king. <laughs> it's more than just a Malcolm X. It's more than just a charismatic, dynamic leader. It requires a generation of people to lay aside their preferences, their securities, their comforts, and to say, I'm choosing to be all in, to sacrifice even if my life, if that's what's necessary, so that the next generation will be blessed. What we are trying to do here at the well, it's not on par with the civil rights movement. <laughs> We're not trying to win some type of war. But we do believe that the vision that God has given us is biblical and it's true. We want to be a church that declares and demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, and that he is willing and able to pour out salvation to anyone who asks. And we want to see that message proclaimed and demonstrated right here in our community. We want to see our church grow and we want to see moms and dads being discipled. We want to see our kids that were just dedicated come to know Christ, to be raised in the, uh, in the church, to know God's word. And when they're 18, we're sending them out to make disciples as they go to university. We want to be a church that plants other churches where we see the DMV scattered all across with gospel-centered churches. We want to be a church that sends missionaries nationally and internationally. But in order for that vision to become a reality, it's going to take more than just Pastor Matt. And it's going to take more than just me. It's going to require everybody. And that's what our passage that we read today is about. The theme is all hands on deck. 
for anything great to be accomplished, everybody needs to be all in. And so as we continue our study in the Say Yes series with the life of Moses, Moses is going to learn that principle. That in order for his movement, his nation, his people to thrive and to fulfill God's will for his countrymen, that he has to learn to get his people to say yes. And so we're going to see three things in this passage. Number one, we're going to see the need. The need. Number two, we're going to see the trap. And then number three, we're going to see the solution. So the need, the trap, and then the solution. Let's get into this. Number one, the need. The need. So we're walking through the life of Moses. Now remember, Moses uh, uh, was a a Jewish baby, a Hebrew baby. His mom gave him away to save his life. He grew up as an Egyptian under, in the court of Pharaoh. Uh, remember, he was trying to kind of liberate his people. He actually killed an Egyptian, and then he fled away. And so he had 40 years in the wilderness. God called him back. He said yes to God, and he led a liberation movement where God liberated uh, God's people from the, the rain, from the terror of Pharaoh. And so now Moses is uh, leading this freed people. This is a new nation. This is an independent nation. And they are now uh, on their way to the promised land. And they've overcome many challenges. They've overcome the need for food and water. They're even attacked by a foreign nation. And now they're experiencing another problem, which is this internal unrest. Because they don't, as a new nation, they have no policies, they have no practices, they have no judges in place. You see, before Israel was liberated, I'd assume that if um, the Israeli people had a problem, there, there was the Egyptian government who had their kind of systems and processes. But now we see as they're independent and they're liberated, no one knows what to do with these disputes that are happening. So there's thousands upon thousands of these people who have these disputes, some are still committing crimes, some, you know, have um, problems that they need situated out, and anytime you have a problem, anytime there's a grievance, what do you do? You go to the leader. And because there were no judges in place, guess what the people did? They all went to Moses. Look at verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning Till evening. So all these people with all these problems, there's no other leaders, there's no other judges, and so they're like, hey, we have these grievances, we gotta let it, we need it, we need it to be settled. We're going to Moses. And here Moses is with just thousands of people waiting for him to try their case. It'd be like in America. Imagine the president of the United States, Joe Biden, and he's the only one who makes decisions. And he has to make these judgments on, hey, are we going to go to war with North Korea, right? There's someone in line saying, you know, President, we need a decision on this with, you know, maybe Klingler uh, rear ends my car and I want him to pay for my bumper, right? And we're in line for that. I mean, that's like the caseload that, uh, that Moses is experiencing. There is an overwhelming need. There are thousands of people who need help. And yet there's only one person who's trying to meet those needs. Now, how does that apply to us today? Obviously, as Americans, we're, uh, we don't really need more judges. It seems like we have that, that we're doing okay. 
But in terms of spiritual needs, it certainly does feel that there are few people here in Silver Spring who are committed to sharing the gospel. And it certainly does feel that there are thousands upon thousands who have not heard or rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to show you this map. I did a little research on the religious demographics of Silver Spring. And this is from thebestplacestolive.net. And in this place, what you'll see is the, the darker green it is, that means the more religious. So interestingly, Washington, D.C., which is most of the country would say is like a swamp, right, is godless, seems to be the most religious place in the DMV. Then there's, you know, Northern Virginia, Arlington area, very green. But do you notice Silver Spring? Just above D.C., where that blue line is, there's hardly any green in that at all, isn't it? This website said that only 40% of citizens who live in Silver Spring view themselves as religious. 40%. The highest percentage of, uh, of that is 14% are Catholics. 1.4 Episcopalian, 3% are Methodist, 1.6 are Presbyterian, 3.2 are Jewish, 1.3 associate with Islam, and 6.5% are another type of Christian faith. I think it's safe to say that maybe 85, there's maybe 85 or 90% of all of Silver Spring reject Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior reject the Bible as the Word of God, reject the message that we are saved not by our works, but by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Church, do you see the need? Do you see the need? When people ask, hey, what church should we go to in the Maryland area? I'm sure there's churches that, that, we know, that are doing good stuff that we don't know about, but the ones that we know about, we can think of maybe five in the whole area of Maryland. There's a huge need. And the question I have for you is this, is do you feel the burden of that need? Do you weep for that need? Do you reorient your life so that God would use you to meet those needs? Eternity is at stake in our community. And my fear is this, that we have bought into a faith, which as I call as this, is we're, just, we're, we're content with being good enough Christians. I just want to be good enough. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do my 10% tithe. I'll come to church twice a month. I'll join my community group and, and kind of be transparent. And, and that I'm doing my duty but then the rest of the week, I'm living my life. I got to take care of the house. Got to take care of the kids. I got to do all these type of things. And what I call that type of faith is good enough Christianity. And good enough Christianity, church, is not good enough. Paul says, I am a servant to the gospel. And that word servant is a slave. Is that Jesus Christ owns me. He gave all of himself for me, and what Christ requires 
is for us to give all of ourselves to him. There is a need in our community. And so then the question is, is how are we going to meet that need? And as leaders, what we do is what we're, we often fall into a trap. And this is the trap that Moses falls into. It's this trap that we try to do it by ourselves. So look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, when Moses' father-in-law, so we're reintroduced to Moses' father-in-law. His name is Jethro. And leave it to father-in-laws, right? Leave it to father-in-laws to kind of knock some common sense into their son-in-laws. And so Jethro is reunited with Moses, and he, uh, and he sees what's going on. He says, you know, Moses, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? He said, Moses, what are you doing? This is inefficient. This is chaotic. You're wasting your time. And notice what Moses says. Halfway through verse 15, he says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. <laughs> and I decide between one person and another. And I Make them know the statutes of God and his laws. You see the trap that Moses fell into? Now, I don't want to beat up on Moses. Any good leader gets in the game, gets into ministry, fights for a cause because they have a God-given burden for the needs of their people. But what happens is sometimes you care, but maybe you care a little bit too much. And you, say, and you start saying yes, and yes, and yes, and before you know it, you've bitten off way more than you can chew. But what's Moses doing here? Moses might not even be realizing it or not, but I think the reason why sometimes we overcommit ourselves the reason why we can fall into this trap of like, hey, I'm going to serve in this ministry. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for my kid. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. The reason we fall into this trap is because maybe, just maybe, we've believed this lie that we are God and that we can do all things. We believe this lie that we're all powerful. We believe this lie that we're all knowing. We believe this lie that we're omnipresent. And in order to actually let go and, and let other people take care of the needs that we can't meet is for us to acknowledge that we aren't God and we need help. And that is the trap that so many of the leaders today can make, myself included. And that trap results in chaos. Look what Jethro says. Verse 15, uh, verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, Moses, what you are doing is not good. <laughs> now, Hebrew, the translation for Hebrew is, Moses, you're an idiot. Okay, that's what really the Hebrew means there. Moses, what you're doing is, is stupid. It's inefficient. And this is what he says. Um, you and the people 
with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You know what Jethro is saying? He says, God has given you a gift, Moses, to be the leader of God's people. But if you hold on to all the leadership, if you hold on to the savior complex, if you don't release, if you don't let go, if you don't empower other people to do the work of the ministry, you will become burdened, you will burn out, and the people of God will burn out too. You will never be able to fully realize God's will for you and for your people. You'll fail. If you believe it, this is a one-man job, it's over. There's a book um, that I recently, uh, that I love, that my dad loves, actually. And my dad was big on, um, you guys know John Maxwell? You ever heard of John Maxwell? He's like a leadership guru. And he wrote this book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And one of the laws that he wrote was the law of multiplication. And he shared this story of, of Henry Ford. And Henry Ford, we all know he started, you know, the Ford, uh, the, uh, the Ford company, and he created the Model T, the first big car of its time. And interestingly, Ford, when he created that car, it skyrocketed, it blew up, it became this profitable corporation. But do you know this? Ford was so married to his Model T that he never allowed leaders underneath him to create a new model. He never allowed it. Uh, he didn't allow anyone to kind of tinker with it. And so even one day, it was a, years later, a team came to surprise them, and they're like, Ford, we have a new car. We think this is better than the Model T. And he saw the car, and no joke, what he did was he ripped off the door from the car and started beating the car with his fists. He never allowed his team to go beyond him. And when Ford stepped down, the company was losing a million dollars a day. His, he fell into the trap, right? I'm the one who made the car. I'm the one who's going to do this. I'm not going to release leaders to do, go beyond me. And his, he suffered for it, and his company suffered for it. And church, I don't want to see that for our community. Pastor Matt cannot reach 80,000 people by himself. <clears throat> Pastor Matt cannot reach the 90, 95% of people who do not have an orthodox understanding and belief and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Matt can't do it. I can't do it. What is required, what is required it's for all of us to be all in. And what I love about the well is that we are a church that wants to give ourselves away. We've set up our communities. God's given you a dream. God's given you a burden. Fill out a grant form. We'll give you 500 bucks. Go reach your community, right? No one can meet indoors. Hey, we'll give you all patio heaters so you can meet outdoors, I mean, we just want to give away and give away in power. Why? Because we understand that the needs are too great for us to do it by ourselves. And so the solution then is this. 
If we can't do it by ourselves, then that means we need everybody to be all in. Look what Jethro says to Moses. Verse 19. He says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So let's pause right there. So Jethro is giving Moses great leadership advice. Jethro is saying, Moses, you're the leader of God's people. And so you need to prioritize what's important. You can't do everything. And so he said, Jethro says, these are the three things you got to focus on. One, you need to meet with the Lord. If God's not leading you, you can't lead God's people, right? So you cultivate your relationship with God. Number two, he says, you need to only take what I would call the Supreme Court cases. Don't take the trivial stuff. Don't take the insurance claims, right? Don't take the speeding tickets. You take the stuff what no one else can handle. And then number three, you be committed to teaching God's word to your people. That's your role as a leader. And then Jethro says, and everything else, give it away. Raise up leaders to do the work that you shouldn't do. Raise up leaders to do the work that you can't do on your own. And this is what he says in verse 21. He says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Jethro gives great advice. He says, listen, you need to multiply yourself. And what you need to do is find godly men who can make these decisions for you and put them over thousands, put them over hundreds, put them over tens. And notice what Jethro doesn't say. Jethro doesn't say, hey, Moses, you need to find the most affluent people in your community. You need to find the most powerful people in your community. You need to find the most popular people in your community. What does he say? He says, you need to find godly men in your community. People who simply just fear the Lord. People who understand that they are not God. That there is a God that they must answer to. That there is a God who will hold them accountable. That there is a God who they know is wise. And that they are submitting themselves to. And Moses says, find those people. And release them to do the work of the ministry that you can't do on your own. And look at what will result. In verse 22, halfway through, it says, If you do this, it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. If you are able to enlist the people of God to do the work of ministry that you can't do by yourself, you will be able to achieve the vision that God has given you. It's possible. 
When I was growing up, uh, many of you know this, I was a pastor's kid, and I, I grew up, my dad planted a church when I was four years old. And we started in elementary school, and then a couple years later, we moved to a middle school. And then at that time in the middle school, we outgrew the middle school, and we knew it was time uh, for us to have a space of our own. And it was in a suburb that was developing, in Plano, Texas. Tons of people were flocking to the city. And so we wanted to be a church that had a space where we could declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my dad led a building campaign. And I remember him just trying to enlist anyone and everyone. And he used everybody. And there were business execs, people who didn't even know the Lord but felt compelled by the vision. And they went to my dad and said, hey, we have some business skills. We can help with fundraising. We can help with the building designs. We can help with the planning. And what happened is they got involved as they enlisted. They gave their life to Christ through it. There were children who got involved. There was one eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid who sold this, um, his, this famous baseball rookie card. It was a rookie card by like Herman Killebrew. It was worth hundreds of dollars. He sold that baseball card and donated it to the building campaign. And then my favorite story was this woman, this elderly woman named Alberta. She grew up in the deep south uh, in the heart of Alabama. And she, uh, she was elderly. She couldn't drive to the church. And so we'd have people pick her up. And I remember every Sunday after the youth would have their sodas and their Cokes, they'd throw away their cans. And she would go into those trash cans and grab those cans. And then after church, she would go to the grocery store and turn those cans in. And the money she made from those cans, she gave towards that building. And I was always moved by those stories. And I remember 10, 12 years, 15 years later, I'd been out of that church for a long time. After I graduated high school, I went to different churches. I lived in California for eight years. And I came back 10 years later to work as a student pastor of that church. And I remember sitting in that sanctuary and looking at the pews. And they're filled full of people. And I had no idea who they were. There was a few here and there. I was like, oh, I remember that person. I remember that person. But like 90%. I never met them before. And my heart was filled with joy because I knew that that generation that I was served with when I was a kid, we gave everything that we had so that a generation, a new generation would come that we would never even meet, maybe never even know about, would be blessed. And church, that's the opportunity that's in front of us. We live in a transient place. Some of us are going to be moving out of here next month. <laughs> We're in a couple months. Some of us in a couple years. And some of us are here for the long haul. But we have an opportunity. Regardless whether you think a building is the best way to accomplish that means, we have an opportunity. We can be that generation that lays down our preferences, that lays down our uh, securities, that lays down our, our comforts. And where we say, God, as the prophet Isaiah says, would you, here I am, send me, I'll go. 
It's our hope in this Say Yes initiative, not just to raise 1.5 million. Our first goal is we just want everybody involved. But the opportunity is in front of us and eternity is at stake. And the question is, is are you gonna be all in? Will you enlist? Where do we get the power to do that? Where do we find the motivation? It's when we look at our Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't, he didn't, have, a, he didn't have a good enough mentality. <laughs> he gave up everything. He gave up his life. He broke his body. He shed his blood. And he died for us on the third day. He rose again. And even now, he is giving everything by pouring out his spirit, giving us gifts and the ability and giving us the invitation to join in the work of renewal of all things. And he's offering an invitation to us right now. And the question is, will we be part of the generation that reaches our community here in Silver Spring and beyond for Christ? I hope I say yes to that. And I hope you say yes to that too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you that you are a God who didn't give half of yourself, didn't give 10% of yourself, but you gave all of yourself. God, you gave your son. I can't imagine giving my son to anyone or anything, but you gave your son, Lord who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. Jesus gave himself so that we could have salvation. And God, you're still giving of yourself today. You've poured out your spirit on your people. You inter your son intercedes for us. And Father, you are working all things right now for the good who, of those who believe in you. God, would we not sit on the sidelines? Would we not be, have a faith that it just settles for good enough? Would the gospel be first importance in our lives? And would we reorient everything around that priority? We need your help to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.